after the golden calf incident, God had offered power without presence. That is, he'd offered to send an angel, but not his presence. The people would go forward, but God would not go in their midst. The tabernacle would not be built because if God were to march in their midst, the people would have to be holy. That was the disaster that has now been averted. And so now what we see is the eagerness of the people in gathering the materials and deploying their gifts and skills toward the end of securing God's presence in their midst. That's what this story is about. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. The Golden Calf Incident brought the entire covenant community to the brink of disaster. It was a catastrophic failure. And yet, the miracle of this story is that somehow, in the mercy of God, joy came in the morning. There was a fresh start. There was a blank canvas. There was a new day. This is a story about the incredible mercy, grace, and patience of the Lord and the joyful and generous response of his covenant people. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Exodus chapter 35. The chapter begins in a very interesting way. Verse 1 says, Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Now, at first glance, this might feel like a misplaced paragraph, but it's not. If you have your Bible open in front of you, just flip back a couple of pages to Exodus 31, verses 12 to 18. This is the last thing written before the incident with the golden calf. What do you see? What you see is the exact same content you are seeing here in Exodus 35, 1 to 3. The Sabbath commandments were the last things given to Moses before the great interruption and disaster of Exodus 32. That was where the story jumped the rails. But here we see the disaster obliterated by covenant mediation and undeserved grace. By putting this content here, the Bible is saying that it is almost as if the incident with the golden calf never happened. We are back on track As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sin from us. He has cast our sins into the depths of the sea, and he remembers them no more. Thanks be to God. And so we start again, exactly where we left off. Moses repeats the Sabbath commandments and then moves forward to the next stage of the covenant adventure. Having received the law and the instructions, It is now time to construct the tabernacle. Remember, that was the piece of the plan that was in danger of being deleted. After the golden calf incident, God had offered power without presence. That is, he'd offered to send an angel, but not his presence. The people would go forward, but God would not go in their midst. 
the tabernacle would not be built because if God were to march in their midst, the people would have to be holy. That was the disaster that has now been averted. And so now what we see is the eagerness of the people in gathering the materials and deploying their gifts and skills toward the end of securing God's presence in their midst. That's what this story is about. And we jump back into the text at verse 4. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded, the tabernacle, its tent and its covering, its hooks and its frames, its bars, its pillars, and its bases, the ark with its poles, the mercy seat, and the veil of the screen, the table with its poles and all its utensils, and the bread of the presence, the lampstand also for the light with its utensils and its lamps, and the oil for the light, and the altar of incense with its poles, and the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense, and the screen for the door at the door of the tabernacle, the altar of burnt offering with its grating of bronze, its poles, and all its utensils, the basin and its stand, the hangings of the court, its pillars and its bases, and the screen for the gate of the court, the pegs of the tabernacle, and the pegs of the court, and their cords, the finely worked garments for ministering in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons for their service as priests. So here, Moses calls upon the people to contribute their talents and their treasure to the building of the tabernacle. It will take both. It will take talent, treasure, and time to build up the house of the Lord. And of course, the same is true today. To build up the house of the Lord in our day, we must all do our part. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So, we all have gifts, spiritual and material, that were given to us by God for the common good. And the house of God will only be built up, and the work of God will only go forth as we offer those gifts generously and willingly as a response of faith to the grace of our redemption. And we see the response of the people here in verse 20. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came. Everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. The people were so aware of God's grace toward them that they did not need to have their arms twisted. They didn't need to send the plates around a second time. Everyone was willing and even eager to give. J. Alec Matir says here, where the heart is right and motives of personal consecration are at work, the purse strings get relaxed. 
and problems of finance and supply are at an end, closed quote. Indeed, as a pastor, I can tell you that this is true. I have found that when people are growing in grace, when they understand the gospel, they understand who God is and who they are and how God has saved them in Christ, when they know that and rejoice in that, and when they are growing in holiness and commitment to the mission, you generally don't need to preach sermons on giving. You generally don't need to prime the pump at offering time. Generally speaking, people who understand grace are eager to respond with generous giving. Where the heart is right and where motives of personal consecration are at work, finances generally are not a problem. Old Testament and new. Pastor Paul, this feels like a really good place for a pause. Generally speaking, Christians feel a little bit awkward about talking about money or talking about giving more specifically. It feels icky and weird when the pastor preaches on it sometimes. Like, we regret bringing our friends to church on the Sundays when that happens. And yet, the topic does come up fairly regularly in the Bible. Despite the fact that the Bible says that the cattle on a thousand hills belongs to God, so he has lots of money, but why then are we often talking about giving when we're working our way through the Bible? Yeah, well, that's a good question. I mean, the Bible does say that God doesn't need anything from us. You cited Psalm 50 there. (laughs) Did I? Yes, you did. Psalm, Psalm 50 verse 10 says, For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Close quote. Yeah, so that's God saying he already is maximally rich. He owns everything. And so you would think that the therefore implied in the text would be, therefore you can keep all your money because I don't need it. Yeah, you would think that. But in fact, the point in the text is totally different than that. Psalm 50 goes on to say, Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. That's Psalm 50, 13 to 15. So in that Psalm, God is actually trying to correct their understanding of what givings and offerings were for. It was not about feeding God or pumping up his bank account. They were expressing gratitude. In pagan religions, the gods require worshipers to feed them and pump them up with prayers and ceremonies. But God is saying, that's foolishness. That isn't what worship is all about. When you make an offering, you're not giving me something I need. You are thanking me for giving you something you need. That feels like a pretty important Mm -hmm. distinction. Yeah, I would think so. So to transpose this whole issue into a modern-day key, when a worshiper today goes to church— Why are they putting a gift in the offering plate? Or (laughs) to transpose this into a post-COVID key, why are they making an e-transfer to the church before they even get in their car to go to the worship service? Yeah. First of all, how weird is it that we do our givings (laughs) online now? Yeah. And and by the way, I'm not criticizing that. Our church made the switch to online giving during COVID as well, just like every other church in Canada. Before the pandemic, I think about 90% of our giving was through the offering plate, and now almost 100% of our giving is online. So Mm. let's just acknowledge that massive shift. And I think the key for us is that we have to be careful about how to make sure that our people don't begin to change how they think about the act of giving. We could very easily slide back into a kind of quasi-pagan mindset, thinking that we're buying off God or purchasing his blessings. 
So however we do it, we need to make sure that we communicate that giving is still fundamentally an act of gratitude. As it is in this story in Exodus 35, generous giving is a way of responding to the mercy and grace of God. He has given us everything. He has given us mercy, forgiveness of sins, a new heart, the Holy Spirit, a bright and certain future, a new and forever family. He's given us everything, including the power to make wealth in the first place. So as an act of humility and faith, we return a portion of what he has given to us as a symbol, as a token of our gratitude. That's what giving is. And we need to make sure that we continue to communicate that, even though the mode of giving for a lot of us has changed over the last couple of years. So as you say, giving is a token of our faith and gratitude. It's a symbol. And yet here in this story, the gifts were given toward a very practical purpose, the building and maintaining of the tabernacle. So there's probably a principle in there for us as well. We shouldn't just take all of these tokens of gratitude and like build a giant golden statue of Jesus. Uh, We ought to do something practical and appropriate with them. Am I right? Yeah. I I would argue that the basic principle here in Exodus 35 remains true in the New Testament. Since God isn't actually hungry or homeless or poor or in any kind of physical need, the gifts of God aren't going to be burned up on an altar or shot out of a cannon toward heaven. Rather, they're going to be used and deployed down here on earth, specifically to build up the house of God and to care for the people of God and through them to care for the world. So these gifts were used to build up the tabernacle, just like our spiritual and financial gifts in the New Testament are going to be used to build up the church. Both physically and metaphorically, I'm guessing. Yeah, sometimes Christians feel better when their gifts go to a more you know, spiritual thing, like sending little kids to camp to hear the gospel or supporting a missionary in an unreached area. And those things are super important. But you know what? Gas for the furnace is important, too. And, and so is paper for the photocopy machine. Hmm. Anything that builds up the house of the Lord or the people of God or that spreads the gospel or that demonstrates the love of Jesus to the world is a good use of offerings given to God. So, okay, drill down on that for a sec. Who decides that, though? Who who decides how much goes to the photocopier and how much goes to the missionaries? Yeah, well, I mean, churches are going to do that differently depending on their polity and tradition. But in our church, like most congregational churches, there's a board of elected elders who exercise financial oversight. They are members of the church. They're not, not staff or pastoral staff. They're members who oversee the budget and who are accountable to the laws for charitable organizations. And then in our system, the budget has to be presented to the congregation for review and affirmation before it's finally approved. So in a sense, all the members are responsible for those things that you mentioned, with a select group doing a fair bit of the heavy lifting. All right. I feel like that was a very useful conversation given some of the awkwardness around giving today. Yeah, and I get the awkwardness. But at the same time, I think passages like this remind us that talk is cheap. You know, it's, it's easy to say, Jesus is Lord. It's easy to say, God is my creator. It's easy to say, I'm so thankful for all my blessings. But it's a whole other thing to put your money where your mouth is. Lots of people come to church, and they raise their hands, and they lift their voices, but they don't give because they spend all their money on stuff for them. Now, to be clear, there are lots of people who don't give because they can't give, and that's a whole other issue. And for that, we might want to remember the story of the widow's mite. But I'm talking about people who indicate by their purchasing patterns that that really, at the end of the day, they are their own God. They are paying homage to themselves. They are giving themselves gifts 
because they believe that they are the authors of their own prosperity. And I think God sees that. And, and he sees beside those folks, he sees folks who understand that all they have comes from God, that, that they are what he made them to be. And their purchasing patterns reflect that too. They buy a little less. They spend a little less on themselves because they have made a commitment to giving back to God. Now, both of those people say that Jesus is Lord. Both of those people say that God is their creator. Both of those people say that they're thankful. But one person is saying it with words only, and the other person is saying it also through their sacrifice and offerings. I want to be that person. And I think we're seeing in the story that people who really understand the grace and mercy of God want to be that person. Mm, Amen. Well, like I said, I felt like it was a really useful conversation. So let's jump back into the story now at verse 22. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signet rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair or tanned ram skins or goat skins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed acacia wood of any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands. And they all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skill spun the goat's hair. And the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod and for the breastpiece and spices and oil for the light and for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. The emphasis here is obviously on the universality of this project. R. Allen Coles is helpfully here. All have a part in building the sanctuary for Yahweh. And without each playing his particular part, it cannot be completed. Here again is a message for us today. Closed quote. I think that is exactly right. All have a part, both men and women. The men were bringing their talents. The women were using their talents. All the men and women, all the people of God, everyone whose heart moved them to participate in the work of the Lord. That's a picture of a very healthy church. Church observers today often talk about how engagement is the true measure of church health over and above attendance. In a healthy church, a high percentage of the people are engaging. They are serving and giving. There will always be people who, for reasons of age or health or unusual life circumstances, cannot engage in these ways. But generally speaking, if people have understood the gospel, and if they are truly filled with the Spirit, and if they are growing in sanctification and consecration unto the Lord, then you will typically see very high levels of engagement. It really doesn't matter how many people attend your church. A bunch of people attending is just a crowd, but a bunch of people engaging is a congregation. And that's what we're seeing here. Thanks be to God. The story continues in verse 30. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, 
See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach, both him and Oholiab, the son of Ahisamach, of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver, or by a designer, or by an embroiderer, in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, or by a weaver, by any sort of workman or skilled designer. So here we see that God has gifted and appointed particular leaders to oversee the building of the tabernacle. They will take the lead. They will use their gifts and they will teach and train others to use their gifts in a coordinated way. So while we are correct in noticing the theme of universality, that of course does not imply that this was a completely democratic process. Universal engagement does not necessarily mean universal authority, and it certainly doesn't mean the absence of authority. That would be chaos. There has to be coordination. There has to be oversight. And we see that as well in the New Testament. All Christians are gifted. All Christians are called to participate in the work. We're all called to serve. We're all equal in that sense. And yet still, the Lord appoints overseers. That is what the word bishop actually means. It is the Latin version of the Greek word episkopos, which literally means overseer. So epi there means over and above, and skopos means to see. The word is used interchangeably in the New Testament with the word presbyteros, which we translate as elder. So an elder is an overseer. Perhaps the best English word for what is being communicated in the New Testament would actually be the word superintendent. That's what an elder is. And that is what we are seeing in this story. Everyone has a role to play, but the Lord has provided certain individuals with the gifts and skills necessary to coordinate and oversee the project. Thanks be to God. Amen. Pastor Paul, I want to come back to what you were saying there. At the end of the program audio, you talked about how Everyone has a spiritual gift, and yet there still needs to be some oversight. This isn't a recipe for complete anarchy here. We will all get to participate, but someone or a couple of someones have to be calling the shots. How does that work out in practice? Yeah, it's a good question, because as a pastor, I've had people come to me and say, you know, I have such and such a gift, so where do I sign up to use that gift? Essentially, they're assuming that the only leadership that is valid in this process is the leadership of the Holy Spirit. If a gift is given by the Holy Spirit, then you know what? Get out of the way while I start using that gift however I see fit. But even here in the story, we see that there, there were foremen on the job site. There were people saying, take your hammer over there and hit that nail, or take your shovel over there and dig that hole. And I think the same thing has to be true in the church. Yes, the Holy Spirit gives gifts, praise the Lord. But there still needs to be an oversight team coordinating and deploying those gifts in an orderly and God-glorifying manner. And we all need to be humble about that and prepared to serve wherever our gifts are needed, as opposed to merely seeking out those places that we think to be the most glorious. Mm, that's a good word. Thanks for that. As always, friends, if you are looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. 
or you can download the Into the Word app at the iTunes Store or on Google Play. And don't forget to tune in to Life 100.3 next Sunday morning for the next chapter in our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.